Hi everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Global Britain podcast, A Force for Good, with me, Ryan Baldry, Communications Manager at the Coalition for Global Prosperity. I am very pleased to be joined today by Tim Lawton MP, Conservative Member of Parliament for East Worthing and Shoreham since 1997. Tim currently serves on the Home Affairs Select Committee and has held positions in both the Shadow Education Team whilst in opposition and then also serving in the Department for Education as Children's Minister. So, without further delay, let's get started. So today I am delighted to be joined by Member of Parliament for East Worthing and Shoreham, Tim Lawton. Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure, Ryan. So just to kick us off, tell me a little bit about your life before politics and what made you decide to get into the wild world of Westminster? Well, it's a bit of a boring uh, story, I'm afraid. Uh, along with many of my colleagues, I was a bit of a, a teenage anorak. So I joined the then Young Conservatives at the uh, tender age of, I think, 14, back in the mid-70s, uh, soon after Mrs Thatcher had become leader of the Tory party. Um, and the reason I did that is Britain was going to the dogs at that uh, that stage. We were having all the union problems and Britain was the sick man of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than just sit at home and throw things at the television and complain about it, I thought, um, right, well, let's go out and do something about it. And so I thought joining a political party was a good idea. And the one that most uh, aligned with me and I was most impressed with largely because of Mrs. T was the Conservative Party. So. I threw myself into young conservatives as one does, you know, paid ping pong, dated other young conservatives as the biggest dating agency in the country that it was at the uh, the time. I think back in the 1960s, there were one million members of the young conservatives um, uh, nationally. It was a huge oh movement. Um, then I went to university, got involved with Federation of Conservative Students uh, there, came down to London, got involved with politics in Wandsworth, where I lived and was a very political um, borough and stood for the local council there. Fortunately, didn't get elected because I didn't have time to be a councillor at the time, but made quite a big dent on the Labour vote and the Labour stronghold. And then in 1990, uh, well, ahead of the 92 election, got selected to fight Sheffield Brightside uh, against David Blunkett um, and uh, narrowly lost on the day by 22,500 votes, put it down <laughs> to the rain. Uh, and then was, and I quite enjoyed the experience. So I thought um, now it's time to perhaps go into politics full time, having been a campaigner and voluntary activist for all those years. Uh, I was lucky enough that a number of seats in Sussex, where I come from, were looking for new uh, new members. And I was selected for East Worthing and Sean, which is a new constituency after a big boundary change at the end of 1995. And then was lucky enough to survive the, um, the bloodbath of the 1997 election, along with uh, about 28 other uh, first-time Conservative colleagues, when it should have been a figure much, much higher. And I've been in Parliament ever ever since, incredibly. <laughs> and I'm, sli I'm slightly worried on the way you bill um, the, uh, these, these podcasts as interviews with former diplomats, generals and politicians. Well, I'm still in politics, but it might be former depending on how well this goes. <laughs> <laughs> there, there should be more of a gap, so it's former diplomats... Uh, and and then current politicians, I should say. Okay, um, so don't worry, I'm not trying to preempt your career here, I can assure you. Um, so at the moment, um, what kind of so, you know projects or issues sort of keep you busy at the moment as as MP? Um, I was a minister for a time as a minister for uh, children, but I mean, being a 
backbencher um, can keep you even even busier, with busy enough time being a minister. So I've, I've kept my interest in children's issues. So in the Commons, I chair the All Party Group for uh, Children, have done for a number of uh, years, and there's you know, it's a really important uh, uh, issue, children's social uh, care, particularly the effect of the lockdown on uh, and schools and children's mental health and everything. So that's a big part of uh, my time in Parliament. I also chair something called the All Party Group for 1001 Critical Days, which is all about uh, infant mental health and perinatal mental health and the crucial time between conception and age two, uh, where we need to do more to make sure kids have a strong attachment to their, their parents. And Andrea Ledson, my colleague, is of course um, uh, holding this review into the early years at the moment, which is about to publish shortly, and I've been very involved with that, so that's taken up a lot of time. And if the government adopt her policies, I hope they will, it will transform the prospects at a very early age for, for kids. So a lot of time on children's issues. I'm a member of the Home Affairs Select Committee. I have been since 2014, I'm the longest standing member of the Home Affairs Select Committee, and that's an area I'm very interested uh, uh, in, and uh, that's a lot of my, my time. And then um, very involved with green issues. I'm a member of the Conservative Environmental um, Network, uh, and I do quite a lot of environmental stuff in my constituency, which links into things we're doing nationally, and of course, all preparing for COP26 20, uh, at the, the moment. Um, and then I have lots of fingers and other pies. So I chair the All Party Group for Tibet, long-standing, the first political campaign I got involved in in Tibet as a teenager, I demonstrated outside the Chinese embassy, and I've been a supporter of Tibet ever since, and of course that's now become quite fashionable because of what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs and in Hong Kong and human rights abuses, which the poor Tibetans have known about since 1959, but now of course it's uh, a high-profile issue, so a lot of time trying to get the genocide amendment into the trade bill to call out China uh, on, uh, on that. Um, so there's quite a lot of issues I'm, I'm involved in and, and lots of other things as, uh, as, as well. So it's a busy time being a backbencher and it's quite disconcerting trying to be a backbencher over Zoom uh, as well because we can't quite hold the government to the degree of scrutiny that we, that we should be able to at the moment, frankly. No, definitely. I, you know, fingers crossed that you're allowed back to do your job soon then, Tim. Um, Indeed. So building on some of this that you've really well led into. So obviously now we're at a really important stage where the UK, we, you know, we've formally left the EU and there's a lot of discussion. And it sounds like you're a part of a lot of these discussions on where the UK should head now. You know, what is our role in the world? Um, and, you know, we hear a lot about um global britain or you know britain taking its place on the world stage but what does that sort of mean to you what what do you see as the uk's role in the world stage because you know it's a very different world than when we went into the eu and kind of joined the bloc so what what do you think our next step should be well i'm it, it's the 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 third biggest issue facing us probably at the moment the first uh, being climate change which is going to be here uh, long after the pandemic and we sort out brexit secondly the pandemic getting through that but thirdly and the big thing that needs to influence uh, policy uh, is how we then develop britain in the post-brexit age and i was a an enthusiastic and active brexit uh, campaigner and and i did that not because I don't like um, uh, Europe, um, but I just don't like the EU institutions, which I think have uh, have acted as a straitjacket on us for too uh, for too long. 
and there are now great opportunities. Obviously, everybody talks about um, uh, trade, and the just last week, so the the, uh, the deal we've done with the states about taking off the tariffs on whiskey and cashmere and other things like that, we couldn't have done within the EU. We've now done is it sixty four. Uh, trade deals and rollover deals uh, with countries around the, the world and the prospect of doing them with countries like India, for example, hugely exciting. The EU spent 10 years trying to do a trade deal with uh, India and completely uh, failed, but uh, India is a really important partner for us. One in 12 people on this planet is an Indian under the age of 28. That, that is a huge, dynamic, exciting, growing economy and we have lots of links for India, of course we need to be looking to deal much more with countries like uh, India, much greater interchange uh, uh, with them. So we need to be looking to the growth economies. I mean, 90% of the world's growth is going to be coming from outside of the uh, uh, EU over the next uh, couple of, uh, uh, of decades, and there are so many economies that we are have not properly been engaging uh, with. And we are leading in so many areas of the world around renewable um, energy, uh, around pharmaceutical development. You know, the pandemic and the vaccine has been a huge example of, uh, of, of that. The fact that we are world leaders in genomics and uh, genome identification, and we've offered our facilities to the rest of the world to help them to uh, research into the strains of the virus around the world as, as well. I think that's a, it's a great uh, policy for us to say, look, we are open for business for the whole of the, the world. We've got some great assets here. We want to share them uh, for our common good. And the contrast with the EU trying to clamp down on sharing uh, vaccinations and uh, and uh, trying to use the Northern Ireland protocol to ban vaccines. I mean, it's just complete nonsense. So I think there's, there's huge potential on the trade front, but there's huge potential on culture as well. And I'm a big advocate of soft diplomacy. I'm by training. I was an archaeologist, uh, and um, which, and so I studied Mesopotamian archaeology, which is not much good for many things. But at least I knew where every, all the sites were in the Iraq War. Um, but we have got some fantastic cultural institutions in the UK, starting with the British Museum, and I chair the All Party Group for the uh, museum, which is a great door opener for people around the world know about or got some link with the British Museum. Uh, and we've got other great institutions, you know, the VNA and our, and our institutions, our theatre, our creative uh, industries, our, our television, you know, which is known throughout the world. And I just don't, I feel we don't use that enough. These are great foot in the door of getting then UK PLC doing more business with other countries around the, uh, uh, the world. And we have so many advantages, you know, good quality products and programmes and cultural uh, projects that we can we can offer, um, and we just need to be selling selling ourselves so much better. And we're seeing some really encouraging signs of that. But gosh, the potential is huge. I think. Mm. Well, you've kind of touched on these points, and so you know we've got um, the integrated review coming up, which you know is going to be setting our foreign policy agenda for you know the next five ten years. And you've kind of already hinted on it, you know, things like we've got really good issues coming up and you've been very vocal on things like the genocide amendment and UK development, especially. Yeah. Um, how important is it, do you think, that the UK takes that, as again, you said, as you said, soft power approach, as well as investing in hard power capabilities? I think the, the influence that the UK has around the world is 
not to be uh, underestimated. And in many cases, you know, the UK will be seen as a, a grown-up um, voice, uh, is in a unique position for sort of pushing diplomatic solutions to various problems around the uh, at the world. That in in many cases, other nations perhaps don't have that sort of uh, uh, cred credibility. And one of the reasons for that is because I think of our aid um, program. And so I was a very firm supporter of our commitment to the 0.7%, uh, the only G7 country that managed to uh, uh, to do that. Mm. Um, and so was really pleased it was a Conservative government that passed that into law in, 20, in 2015. And, you know, I visited a lot of developing countries and it's always a really proud moment when you see a union jack above an aid project, a refugee camp or whatever, saying this is due to UK, uh, uh, UK aid. And I've seen some really, really good examples of where that aid money has been put to very effective use, has saved lives, has brought kids out of poverty as education nations, helping uh, people to set up businesses or, or whatever. So I'm really concerned about the uh, the, the reduction, the proposed reduction to 0.5%. Um, I think it's the wrong um, move. I completely understand why the Chancellor um, wants to, to do it, because we're going through a really tough time and people say charity begins at, uh, at home. Mm. But, but actually, um, that formula of 0.7% means that you take the rough with the smooth anyway. So if our economy is shrinking as it has been at the moment, that 0.7% will be less money going to developing uh, uh, countries. So to, to have a shrinking amount of money anyway, because of the pandemic effect on the economy, and then to cut it to 0.5% is a, is a double whammy. And I think it's, I think it's badly timed because you know, developing countries desperately need help during the pandemic. They've been hit very badly uh, as well. And British aid has an important role to play in that. And I think it also doesn't send out a good message that at a time when we are post-Brexit looking much more global and wanting to work with so many more countries, but we're actually reining back temporarily, hopefully, um, this aid, I think sends out the wrong, uh, uh, the wrong message. So I've taken issue, as a lot of my colleagues have with the government over this, although it's not clear whether we're formally going to be given a vote on it or not, or whether it's just going to, to happen. But I, 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 think it's a, I think it's a mistake. We have been hugely generous. Let's not underplay you know, British taxpayers have stumped up a lot of money to help uh, developing countries around the world. And in some cases, that money's not being wisely spent and it's rightly coming for a lot of criticism. But I've seen so much of it spent so well, and there are so many opportunities now that that, that money could be helping other countries with. Do you think um, a major part of it, the debate around aid, you know, as you said yourself, you've seen some of the incredible work that's been done, but for a lot of members of the public, they don't necessarily know what our aid money does. You know, it's not a kind of a tangible thing. You can see like, you know, building ships for defence or investing in health and education. Do you think there needs to be more of an effort from supporters of aid and even the, the government itself to say, you know, this is what the incredible work is going to because sometimes all people see of aid may be the negative stories or the times it's misspent and you know it's quite hard to publicly see some of the good that does come from aid spending. You are absolutely right and it is very easy to caricature some of the aid projects and frankly when we're giving money to some pop singer in Africa um, that, that hits all the headlines or some very strange um, projects which perhaps were just getting 
a tiny fraction of money through some indirect investment in another bigger um, project, then it completely undermines people's uh, view on the worth of this aid. So it's not surprising, I suppose, that on the opinion polls seem to show that the public are firmly behind this cut to 0.5%. Um, but when you see the actual impact of famine relief in Yemen, so the biggest humanitarian crisis going on at the moment is in uh, Yemen. And I chair the Yemen group and I was speaking to some um, aid agencies within the city of Marib, which is under siege at the moment, just last, uh, last week. Um, and they're very worried about how they're going to get aid through. And also it's not just the, the, the famine relief going on, but it's also rebuilding that country because it's been completely blitzed. And if we don't rebuild that country, then it's going to become a, a haven for Al Qaeda type uh, forces, which are going to cause us problems in the Western world problems, as we've learned from bitter experience in Afghanistan and Somalia and other cases as, uh, as, as well. So there's a mutual benefit in helping those people. It's the right thing to do. But also, if you can help build countries out of poverty, then they can become self-reliant and then they can become positive contributing members of the world community rather than potential troublemakers for the world community. Um, and then there are you know, mutual benefits in terms of defense uh, measures around the, uh, the world to get people on side. Also actually to keep people out, countries out of the hands of China who are using vast amounts of money that they've got to buy influence um, uh, uh, using very underhand uh, means, particularly in parts of, uh, of East Africa and taking many of their resources uh, away. Um, but also there's a business aspect to this. And actually when Justine Greening was the uh, Secretary of State for International uh, Aid, one of the really thing, good things she did, for which she was not given an awful lot of credit, she took business delegations on aid trips. I remember she took a whole load of businessmen and women to East Africa. So to work with micro-businesses and parts of the economy in those countries to see how we could use our expertise, help by aid, to get them to set up businesses that would then grow the economy, create jobs, and they'd end up exporting to, to us. So there were business links that could be set up as, uh, as well. And I think too often people just see aid as writing a blank check for poor countries that are not very well run, and it ends up on a fleet of BMWs for the the president or whatever despot uh, is, uh, is, is in charge. That used to be the case. That's not the case anymore. And we just need to see on our screens really good examples of where British taxpayers' money is saving lives, getting kids vaccinated, uh, and rebuilding um, uh, economies and, and countries that have been suffering from civil war or whatever it may that may be. And I think that might turn people's attitudes. We are so generous when it comes to big appeals, you know, the public dips into their pocket of their own volition to support um, Red Nose Day and uh, and uh, all the various relief programs going, going on. They like to see that money well spent and we just need to sell that rather better. And you've kind of touched on it already, you know, we're, we're currently competing for space and influence with states like China and Russia, especially in what's seen as, you know, the vaccine diplomacy that's going on at the moment. So what do you think their influence or what influence can we have on multinational institutions, you know, things like the UN, WTO and things where we're now taking back or not taking back, but we're now sort of getting our, our independent voice back in those institutions. How do you think we can try and tackle some of those problems that 
China will be trying to block at every stage. And, you know, because they're, they're technically competing agendas in institutions that are arguably, you know, outdated and need a breath of fresh air. Yeah, and that, and that is the frustrating thing. I mean, the, the, the UN is is exasperating on so many fronts. Um, China using its veto uh, within the World Health Organization, you know, China funding that and buying influence. And so is there a cover-up going on on investigating the uh, source of the pandemic? And did the WHO uh, investigators get proper access? Probably, uh, uh, probably not. Uh, and the reason we're pushing hard for the genocide amendment in the trade bill is because we we know that the UN is just not going to call them uh, call them out because it just gets vetoed by China and its allies uh, anyway. So the only way we are going to make a point to China is to say that the British uh, courts and British Parliament will have the power to call you out for committing genocide, which I have no doubt is what is going on in Xinjiang province against the uh, Uyghurs, and frankly has been going on against the Tibetans for many uh, decades. Uh, and therefore, we are not going to deal with a, a state which commits uh, genocide uh, on, an equal, um, on an equal basis, and there needs to be consequences. Now, the UN should be doing that job so that various Chinese government officials should be called out in the international courts and uh, uh, and and exposed. It's just not happening, which is why independent nations um, and they've done it in uh, in Holland. The, the states have described it as uh, uh, as genocide, and we now need to work together as a network of uh, of decent um, adult democracies to to jointly call out what's going on with uh, with China. Because I'm afraid those those international institutions are failing to do that that job, which is really frustrating. That's why the Genocide Amendment is really important in Parliament at the moment. I just hope the government is going to take that on board. Mm. And so, um, sort of bringing it back home, I guess, slightly, um, as you said, you've, you're one of the longest serving members on the Home Affairs Select Committee, and it's sometimes hard for a lot of people to understand how, but until before the pandemic, really, how a problem abroad became a problem um, at home. And so after COVID, looking around, what do you think is going to be one of the biggest issues that we have to face or deal with so that it doesn't become a problem on our own shores? Um, you know, because I know, so, you know, some people point at things that can, there's a lot of contributing factors that lead to, you know, things like um, illegal crossings and the channel and things, their, their problems can all be traced back to a number of different international um issues so kind of just from your experience what what do you think is going to be coming across your desk and you know is going to be something that we're going to have to confront well the the home first select committee is it's a really interesting committee it has a really wide remit on the home office is a vast um uh, department so we've been looking at the migrant crossings um uh, issue which is a a major problem for a particular problem at the moment where um, around Dunkirk in northern France, they've got some of the highest COVID infection uh, rates, and we've got lots of people coming uh, across the uh, uh, the channel. And then we know we've got all the problems with the infection rates in refugee um, uh, hostels and, uh, and and so on. So we've been looking at, uh, at that. We're looking at the police complaint situation at the moment, uh, and is that fit for purpose? And how we hold the police to account. And obviously, this latest tragic case about potentially, allegedly, a police officer being involved in the abduction and murder of a child is going to raise some questions um, there. Well, not a child, a grown-up, sorry, a young woman. Um, 
But we've also looked and we'll be looking again at extremism. Um, we did a big project a few years ago on anti-Semitism um, and also Islamophobia we've, uh, we've looked at, but the whole issue around um, hate crime um, and particularly its manifestation on social media. And several times now we've had the key people from the social media companies in front of us um, saying, how come you can host this stuff which is promoting people um, becoming terrorists or supporting terrorist organizations, is anti-Semitic, uh, is promoting hate crime in so many other um, ways. And I, I think we've played quite an important job, as has the DCMS Select Committee, in exposing the inadequacies of these social media companies who are making a fortune from hosting hate crime, uh, effectively, and are really uh, timid in, in taking stuff down when it's called out, let alone um, preventing it from coming onto their platforms in the, uh, uh, in the first place. So it, there's always quite a big duffing up that goes on when we have the social media companies in, in front of us, and they've just been absolutely um, woeful uh, about that. So th there's, a, there's a lot of issues we need to, 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 to deal with, and we'll be looking again at the whole e extremism um, issue and, and how as a society we can determine you know, what is acceptable, what is news that needs to be promulgated, and what is stuff that is potentially inciting violence, hatred, racism, or, um, uh, or, or whatever. So um, we're quite a busy committee, as you can, as you can tell. <laughs> no quiet day at the office. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> okay, well, so, um, absolutely, so thank you for all of this. I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating. And I guess, you know, on a much lighter note, you know, a nice fun question that I'd like to ask my guests so far. <laughs> They're always um, the worst. They're the ones that catch you out. <laughs> <laughs> You're on to me, Tim. You're on to me. Um, so if you could invite two figures from history or the present for a pint in the pub post-COVID, when all is allowed, who would you choose and why? Oh dear. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll come across as a terrible um, anorak. I mean, it's all like the dinner party question: Is it who were your six characters from from history? Yeah. Um, well, I was, um, as I say, my background's in uh, in archaeology, and I studied classical uh, history. So my great uh, heroes were Alexander the Great and uh, and Cicero, which sounds terribly nerdy, but fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, characters that um, we could. I just love to sit down with and hear what really went on in um, in in Rome in the first century BC or in uh, Macedonia in the uh, in the end of the fourth century uh, BC. Um, but otherwise, of course, more recently, who wouldn't want to sit down with Mrs. Thatcher again? <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. So. Tim, thank you so much. You've been an absolute pleasure to have and your, some of your insights there have been absolutely incredible. So on it, thank you so much for your time today. Sure, it's been fun. Thank you. So that's it for today's episode. A huge thank you goes to Tim Lawton for joining us today and being such an excellent guest. Also, thank you to the rest of the Coalition for Global Prosperity team for their help with making this podcast what it is. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss out on future episodes and also make sure you visit our website at coalitionforglobalprosperity.com to keep up to date with our incredible events lineup that we have coming. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to welcoming you back next time. <laughs>